Hey, everyone, and welcome to Don't Call Me Buddy. This is a podcast that's meant to expose you to topics you may have never considered, rethink the norm, and question who we are as human beings floating through space. But before we talk about those big, thought-provoking issues, we need to set some ground rules. And the only ground rule is that you can't call the other person buddy. With that out of the way, let's introduce today's topic. Today, we're going to provide our own thoughts on the GameStop situation. Explore our favorite parts of our interview with our guest from last week, our dear friend Nico, and end with a few personal takeaways. Well, Steve, that sounds great. But before we do, I would just like to apologize for my rude behavior on the first episode. I promise. I swear to you and the viewers that I will never do it again. As you should. You know, Nick, there's one rule, and somehow you managed to break it during our first episode. Well, listen here, man. As I recall, you dropped the hard B the second after you kicked me off. Not only did you say it once, you said it twice, actually making your transgressions worse than mine. I tried to do a nice thing by apologizing here, and you're just taking it the full way, okay? You can't even own up to your own mistakes. Well, Nick, as I said in that episode, when I cut, it was my show, my rules. The rules have changed. The game has changed. Once someone drops that terrible, terrible word, no rules apply. Table stakes. (laughs) Steve, there are some rules no matter what. We even said in the intro, there's only one rule, and yet you broke the rule. It doesn't matter if you're the only one hosting the show. First of all, kicking off your co-host while you're interviewing the first guest, what kind of a you know jerk move is that? You know, it's a modern show. I'm trying to keep things interesting for the audience. It was, you know, you irritated me. There was a kick button, and I did it. Sue me. All right, all right. Well, uh, well you know, talking about lawsuits, there's, been a, there's still been a lot in the news about GameStop. And, you know, I really enjoyed that initial conversation. You know, what were what was your 30-second pitch on that? So, obviously, I enjoyed it, too. I'm looking really looking forward to the next time we get to interview Nico um, as he's getting into the fifth year of his PhD and uh, treating more patients in a psych setting. It's really cool to actually talk to a professional in the field about the psychology of the people who invest in GameStop. But I'd be really curious to know, you know, just the number of people who during the pandemic have just sit there and stare at their phones all day during work, seeing stocks rise and fall. I mean, how much of this was really driven by COVID? I genuinely don't think this situation with GameStop would have happened if young people were still working in person and if university students still had to physically be there in class. Oh, 100%. And I, I don't think it's necessarily just university students. I think it's the whole millennial generation. I mean, looking at myself, I used to dabble with stocks. I'd watch charts during the day when I used to have to go into the office. I was traveling, but it was much more tempered. I was It was a long-term focus. I couldn't have on two screens, charts on one, work on the other, peeping eyes all around, couldn't do it. But now I'm at home all day. I've got multiple screens. I've got stocks on one. It's just so easy. You know, there's no one there to really scold you and you're able to do really whatever you want. And in this case, if you want to stare at stocks all day, you've got taken up in the phenomenon that was GameStop. You know, why not spend the whole day thinking about it? Well, I actually have a very good reason for not spending the whole day because I'm I'm new to investing. And I like you, I dabbled a little bit in day trading. And I noticed that, to be honest, my mental state drastically improved the second I closed my positions, sold my shares. I mean, the day-to-day price fluctuations, even minute-to-minute changes, dude, they were so stressful. It was really hard to focus on anything else, and it felt like a prolonged adrenaline rush in a way. 
Um, and that's what was really cool about last episode when we interviewed Nico, because he shared some of the science behind that, where, you know, he mentioned adrogenuric <laughs> responses with adrenaline and noradrenaline, or in more modern scientific literature, it's epinephrine, norepinephrine. Oh, God, one day I'll be able to pronounce it. That's That'd probably why good. I'm not going to get a doctor after my name. But, you know, the fact that he mentioned that, plus the fact that adrenal glands are on the top of your kidney. Dude, I want to trade out my kidneys because... My adrenaline, it was just through the roof. I'd be on these calls for work. I'd have another tab open with the stock charts, like you were saying. I was just a mess on both ends. Dude, and the other side of that is, you know, sell your kidneys. You need more cash. You want to buy more GameZog shares? Sell those bad boys. Oh Pick up an God. extra 10, 15 shares. But no, you know, I completely agree. And that's what I loved about bringing Nico in because he provided that psychological dimension. And it really is. It's you know, we touched on gambling, the dopamine rush, and that's what it is. I mean, from my own perspective, and like you said, you know, there is a thrill to closing a position, seeing those green, but at least for me, you know, there's a rush when you see the stock go up, you're watching the charts, your, you know, your profit is getting larger and larger and you sell and maybe you make some money or maybe you don't, maybe you think that it's going to go even higher. But, you know, for me, you would close one trade, you'd make a profit, you'd be like, ooh, very nice, you know, I'm, I'm doing quite well. And then, you know, you see another juicy opportunity in the chart, you get back in. And over time, the cycle of doing this, you get, at least personally, a little ballsier, a little ballsier. You learn, you know, you learn how to read the, you know, the trend lines, the moving average, all these different technical indicators. And, you know, you think that maybe you know something more, you try, again, I guess it really just comes down to gambling. There's a dopamine rush. You get, you know, you make up, you know, 5% one time, you keep trying to push that envelope a little bit more, 5 7%, and eventually you're making very ballsy trades. Or in the case of some of the folks trading GameStop, you know, you're putting your whole life savings into that because, the rush of maybe this turning out great is just so much to you that you, you know you're willing to take that and maybe there is you know the the compounding factor of being at home having these things open all the time and frankly maybe just being a bit more bored i think so too and on the board, well, first of all, bold of you to assume that everyone's making money out here. My portfolio is way down the tubes. Dude, that's actually <laughs> what got me kicked off the first one was blaming you for the bad stock tips. But Bad um, stock tips? And, hey, dude, you know it's true. Um, but in terms of the perspective that Nico brought, why don't we uh, get to one of those clips on adrenaline? People don't sit without entertainment, i.e. they don't sit without something that is going to provide them stimulation for any period of time anymore. And the lack of stimulation or the increased amount of stimulation increases the desire for it. And when you combine that with reduced impulse control in the younger population, you have people that gamble shit tons of money. You have people that have like extreme boredom, depressed affective states. Like there's, there's a lot of pathology that can come from it. And we're still just seeing the, the start, you know, we, we're, we're just starting to see the generation of young kids that are growing up with a tablet in their hand because their parent doesn't want to give them the attention that they need. So like Nico was saying, I it just sticks out to me so much because it really parallels with what I've experienced in my own life during the pandemic where I'm online a lot more of the time. I feel like I'm looking for more quick hits as opposed to taking these deeper dives uh, like I usually do. Like I noticed that back when everything was in person, I would you know listen to these long lectures a little bit of a nerd, but whatever. And now I don't do any of that. I'm just looking for quick hits constantly, always want some sort of stimulation. And part of that is, as Nico was saying, you know, seeing this tablet generation come up, 
where they constantly have something to be focused on. And he mentioned back in the day when you didn't have all of these um, uh, different influences going on at these stimulants, you just sit there and be alone with your thoughts. I'm never alone with my thoughts now. And I feel like part of that, um, the broader takeaway here is also how do you how do you get people hooked on these platforms? And you know, bringing that connection with the gamification of investment platforms, where Robinhood in those House committee hearings, um, they were being grilled on how they're using these psychological tricks um, to pull their users in and not treat them like customers, but like you know these sort of um, farm animals to get these constant psychological rushes every time they press a button and buy a stock. And I feel like there's a lot of parallel between that social media platforms. And I'm not sure if attention spans are decreasing as a result of COVID, but it certainly feels that way in my own life. First off, farm animals? I don't really know where you're coming from with that. So I'm going to put that in the parking lot. We can come back to that later. But Nick, I 100% agree with you. And it is, in a lot of ways, the same way as social media. And in the last couple of years, there's been so many so much conversation around the detriment of social media. There's a lot of, you know, discord around even, you know, in, in, I guess it's not so much serious, but similar to cigarettes where they have that warning label on them of the damage that they cause to your lungs and body labeling social media apps. Again, you know, this could cause serious damage to your mental health. And it's exactly that it's that gamification today, whether it's shorter attention spans or just the overload of, stimulus stimuli in our lives today so many different things that we're focusing on how does one app one platform really stand out from the others and hold our attention for more than the next and again it's that psychological rush whether you're on instagram and you're liking a post or posting something and seeing all the likes go up or on Robinhood, where you're able to in a matter of seconds set up an account and buy a stock and see maybe you've made money and if you have then it reinforces that stimulus and you're going to go ahead and do it again and it's really just the the modern era to some extent you know there's so much competition for everyone's attention outside of work outside of life you know we can't sit alone with our thoughts anymore i i struggle on a daily basis to just carve out 15 minutes, 30 minutes to just sit and think where I'm not tempted to grab my phone or even check the stock charts and see how things are going. It's, it's constant psychological batterment to an extent. Um, and, and it's only going to continue in my thought. I mean, it's just, it's just the state of the world that we live in. Well, Hey man, that's why, uh, people like me, uh, have a real advantage because when I'm lying awake, in bed at night uh, with my insomnia, and it's two in the morning. You know, I've got uh, three hours worth of thoughts right there. I've got that uh, 100% <laughs> advantage on you, my man. Well, you know, on that thought, I think there's so many more people today as well who have insomnia and sleep issues, and maybe it comes back to even, you know, shorter attention spans, but you know, you're in bed. What are you saying? I have a small brain. Oh, look at Nick. He's a child. He's got the mental capacity of a penguin. No wonder he can't <laughs> sleep at night. His poor little brain. You know, Nick, a comment like that just solidifies to me that you are in fact a child. You are in fact a penguin. You are a penguin child with a the smallest brain in all of the Arctic. But, but, but that aside, you know, that aside, you're going to insult me like that. I think, all right, frankly, I think this quote from Nico I think we're getting a little off track and it's becoming a bit too personal for my liking. So I'm, I'm trying to hold myself in. I'm trying not to lash out with these ad hominems because God knows you deserve it. Uh, just well, look uh, at that face. Jesus. 
All right, well, don't bring my gl glamorous mug into this, but uh, just to tie up the end there. So similar to, you know, Instagram with Robinhood, you know, you get a lot of likes, you do well on the stock, you know, you're winning a lot. And what was cool that Nigo brought in is the dimension of, well, what happens when you lose? You know, what happens when you're not getting a lot of likes or in the case here, when you've lost big on Robinhood or in GameStop? What would happen if you're, you ride this high, you have these roads that are, are well-reinforced, these reward pathways are, are well-reinforced because you've been successful for a while and then you start losing it all. What happens then? Well, it depends, but really those, those reward pathways have helped you develop your personality and your affective states in which they are today and how you handle them and how you deal with them, especially how you relate to other people and yourself. Now, Nico went on to say that it's highly individualized and that was just a generalization. And at the individual level, it's really based on how you normally deal with stress, how you normally deal with loss. So what's happening as a result of the loss of money and potentially confidence? Are you isolating yourself socially? Are you looking for a dopamine kick in other ways? And one thing that I found just as a grounding technique that um, I got from Nico and have actually been applying in my own life um, is that when you do suffer from a loss, no matter what it is, Nico suggested to focus on what you can control. And I think about that a lot in my day to day. And it's helped with my stress at work, where frankly, there are a lot of things out of my control that I just frankly, uh, it's a lot nicer to sort of step back, take a deep breath in, realize everything isn't as big of a rush as it seems to be these days, and then focus on what I can personally affect and change. A hundred percent. And I think what's so difficult about that is it's that constant overload because so in the case, say you lost money on GameStop, you know, what do people do to cope today? Maybe they go to social media, maybe they go onto YouTube, but it's, it's still that constant simulation. And it's not that people don't have a, people struggle with the means of really grounding themselves. And I agree, you know, I, I did reflect on what Nico said and, you know, this other week of personal thing, you know, Bitcoin has been taking uh, quite the kick to the nads and. I have a I have a stake in there and I watched some of my attendees disappear and it was just constant over the last week, two weeks. And mentally, there was at one point this week where I just physically felt ill and it was just too much to focus on. So for me, I just closed my laptop. I stepped away from work. I honestly just lied down. I didn't pull out my phone, which is usually most people's react, you know, first instinct these days. I'm gonna, I've got a minute, let me pull out my phone and disconnect. And I just sat there and I just, you know did some deep breathing. And I tried to just ground myself in that, you know, I'm getting focused on the short term. I can't control this, but what I can control is how I react to that and how I let this affect me. And obviously- What do you want, still... someone to hold your hand, dude? You're doing deep breathing exercises? What is this, maternity ward yoga? Yeah, it would be nice. You know, someone comes in there, gives me a little pat on the back, tells that me it's going to be, be okay. Nice. That would be nice. Someone rubs your belly a little bit. Great job. Keep going. You're doing your best. Yeah. But I mean, it's, I so, think, no, no, please. I was just going to add. So I think the way we've sort of framed it and the way it's being presented a lot, both in the media and on, on Capitol Hill, is that we're becoming too attached too quickly to these new online internet interfaces 
where we don't fully understand the psychological impacts that these things are having. You've got all these engineers whose only job at companies like Facebook are to make you as addicted as possible to the platform so that you keep coming back for these quick dopamine hits. And I'm not sure what the sustainability of that is. I'm not sure what the real impacts are. Frankly, we could be blowing it out of proportion. But one thing that I find funny and maybe a little ironic is when Nico said um, that he thought people were going to retreat from technology. There will eventually become like an othering of like us versus them. But for people that want to integrate technology into their life immensely and those who really want to keep it away from them. And it's like, you know what, dude, obviously, look at the Amish. People have been doing this for hundreds of years. Like, I can't believe that you kicked me off the show before he made that comment. I mean, first the bridge, the bridge analogy, and now that, I would have pounced on him. Well, that's what happens, Nick, when you drop a hard B in such an offensive word such as that. What am I supposed to do? I have no other options. You missed a, you missed a juicy th you know, thing. And I can tell now that you're prepared. You've got a lot of thoughts on that. You know, this retreat from technology. Is it realistic? I mean, are the, have the Amish been onto something this whole time? Dude, there's still a ton of uncontacted tribes out there in the Amazon, off the coast of Sri Lanka, other places in the world where it's just people who, frankly, don't want anything to do with modern society. Now, with indigenous tribes, it's a little different from someone who, like the Amish, it's like, all right, you're fully integrated into modern society. And then you're like, you know what? This isn't worth it. I want to go back. I want to get down, you know, back to the farming roots. I want to be more in touch with nature. I don't want all this technology going on. I want the the real essence of the human experience. I want to live my life. I don't want to just be trapped in this rat race. I want to, you know, make a better life for me, my family, everyone else. And well, well I maybe I'm giving I, him too much credit, but no, no, no. I think I don't think you gave him too much credit. The trend's and, been there for a long time of people who just want to completely disconnect, go back to nature like it's some sort of messiah, you know, back to the Garden <laughs> of Eden, and somehow that's going to fix every problem in the world and everything is going to be great. I don't know. I just don't buy it. Well, there's always going to be problems. And I'm sure in those societies, they are riddled with their own issues. But, you know, talking about the Amish, indigenous tribes, I, you know, it's not like they're retreating from modernity today. You know, this, you know, they have been around for a long time. And there's, you know, religious reasons, cultural reasons why they distance themselves from, you know, electricity, the modern advent, you know, modern advents. But what was interesting that Nico mentioned is that will hit an you know a, a tipping point where people will you know there'll be those who really want to remain integrated with technology live their lives on social media constantly connected to a screen and those who maybe come to a point where they've had enough and they want to take a break and you know Nico you know we were talking a little bit about us versus them this tribalistic mentality that seems to dominate almost every aspect of life today and he was looking at that from you know applying that to the technological technological perspective you know, of a break from that. But, you know, you look at the Amish and things, I mean, all those sort of disconnected cultures today are being strained because technology is so invasive. I mean, you can't, you know, everything that you need to do today, whether it's from, you know, taxes or your medical records, or even today, you know, with the pandemic, you can't go see a doctor anymore. So what do you need to do? You need to hop on telemedicine. You need to download an app. You need to create an account and reach out to a doctor through there. I mean, it's just so pervasive that I think it's really going to come to the point where it's, it's impossible. 
And you hear about all the times, you know, they're the older generations, you know, maybe, you know, older than the baby boomers, those who are not connected, didn't grow up with it. Maybe they don't even have internet as a large population within the United States, frankly, does not have, they don't have access to co consistent or sustainable internet. Well, Whole I wouldn't say topic. I wouldn't say it's a large population, it's, but it's, I'm with you. I'm tracking. No, no, no. It's well, like I said, whole nother topic. Don't want to open up that can of worms. But, you know, at this point, everyone needs to be connected just to exist. And whether you are just looking at it to do the bare minimum or you're looking to go to the other side of that where, you know, you're watching Netflix every night, you're on every social media platform, you're trading on Robinhood. It's just this complete overwhelming sense that you can't escape it. No, definitely. And I think part of that is just the velocity of information and how quickly people need it. I used to, one of, one of my first jobs ever, I was interning at a state government agency. And for um, some of some of the people that we were serving, they needed to, it, it was energy related. And some of the people had these systems where they would need to give us 15 minute interval data on their systems. Now, there were some people in um, very rural areas, very isolated. They did not have great connections. And that's frankly where a lot of land was for these installations. And so you would have some homeowners who'd call in and say, hey, there's a state reporting requirement that I have to have an internet connection to send you this interval data every 15 minutes. But frankly, my connection is crap. Is there another way that I can comply with your regulations? Because this is just an undue burden that, you know, frankly, it, it's unrealistic since you're living out there in the boonies where the infrastructure investments just haven't been made to support that. That's a good point. And to some extent, I think it's evident of this disconnect really between, you know, maybe the government elected officials and reality. You know, we're still, you know, as you mentioned, you know, there are all these hearings going on in Capitol Hill, whether it's, you know, Amazon, Facebook, the antitrust laws, you know, call it, being called into question, content moderation, this power of big tech, if you will. Um, but, you know, it's, I think it's just evident of a greater disconnect. Yeah. And frankly, I don't even blame the old geezers that are up there. And sorry, I'm sure there are some young members of Congress. We can all think of a few who are high Our profile. Our boy Pete Buttigieg. He's not in Congress, you idiot. He's well, in right, well, Department of Transportation. He's, he's, he's an elected branch. He's an oh elected my official. Oh my God, yeah. He's an elected official. All right, I guess everyone else knows a few of these people, but uh, Steve apparently doesn't. But I mean, I'm thinking of people who are older folks like Chuck Grassley, the Corn King. He's been around since the 60s or the 70s. I mean, the guy's ancient. And uh, frankly, I don't blame people like Chuck. I blame the staffers, who in many cases are not finance people. So with this whole GameStop fiasco, you have a couple things. One, no one was going on Wall Street bets. Maybe there's some junior staffer that's randomly involved and likes to go on there and post, you know, all this sort of content. But, you know, the the legislative aides and the other people who are actually doing some of that closer work for these committees, they're not going on Wall Street bets. They don't even know what Wall Street bets is before this thing happened. So for some of it, frankly, I blame the staff. Uh, another part, I blame the media and the media narr narrative around it. If you follow major media companies like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, those heavily influence what questions get asked in Congress. Now, on the plus side, it, it means that it's kind of nice. It's predictable to know how a hearing is going to go if you pay attention to the news. And so, I don't know. On the one hand, you know, Maxine Waters, committee chair for the House Finance Committee, says there's going to be a third hearing on this. And then it's going to ensure that our capital markets are fair and transparent, really dig in find out if investors have the strong protections that we say there are 
and make sure that Wall Street is held accountable and beneficial to the American economy. But no one outside of those inner circles really thinks that Wall Street is that beneficial to the Amer- American economy. All the stuff that happened in 2008, I feel like you know it, it sort of got pulled into the GameStop thing, but it's still as true today as it was back then. Those major institutions were not held properly accountable. And to a lot of people, it seems like they don't play by the same rules as the rest of us as retail investors. Well, you know, that's a growing trend. And, <clears throat> you know, as you mentioned, there's they're trying to ensure that our, our markets are fair and transparent. Investors have strong protections. Wall Street's accountable. I mean, this isn't the first time that this has come up. You know, this has been around really, you know, since the 80s, the rise of Wall Street and seeing all this wealth generated and how really 99%, you know, whatever you want to say that represents, most of the population is left out of reaping that. You know, it's a rich man's game. And the same could be said for big tech. You know, they came in last year, there were all these hearings with Zuckerberg and Bezos Bezos and um, Jack Dorsey, you know, all the big heads of tech trying to, you know, the government's trying to get involved here to, uh, you know, regulate this. And it sort of just falls on flat ears. And, and the takeaway that I get, at least from all these hearings, is you listen to the questions that are asked. And, you know, like you were saying, these older officials, but, you know, it just it's just evident of the disconnect between government and the modern world. And, you know, there's, you know, like I was going back to Wall Street, you know, it's been around since the 80s. It's only gotten worse since then. You know, is anything really going to happen now? You know, with the with the hearings on tech last year, has anything really changed yet? And yes, I understand that these things take time. They're huge beasts to really understand and then to understand how you could regulate that. But at the same point, you know, it's it just I think to the average person, this is you hear about this all the time. Some issue comes up, Washington gets involved, they try to regulate it, they have these hearings, and then what? You don't hear about anything again until some major issue, the next GameStop phenomena. The next, you know, Google buying whatever company antitrust going on there, you know, happens and then it comes up again. Right. But Steve, I think that's just the nature of the news. There there are all these stories today with a 24 hour news cycle. It's like, oh, man, breaking news and GameStop. It was a hot topic for what, a week? And it will randomly come up in, you know, a few days over over the last uh, two or three months. It's currently March 27th. It's come up a, a few days, but it doesn't have the inertia that the sort of the press mentions that it used to right when it was kicking off. And I think part of that is just the media landscape with all this stuff going on. I mean, hey, dude, I want to see my Suez Canal memes. I want to know what's going (laughs) on over there. I don't want to think about GameStop. But the last thing I'll say in terms of uh, The Hill, because I don't want this podcast to be too political, but the last thing to say is, you know, those people, even though I was ribbing them, they have good intentions. The hearings, the way they progressed, their number one thing is, oh, crap. People in my district, retail investors, got hurt. Let's try to limit that and protect ordinary people, which, you know, by the way, it's almost phrasing it like ordinary people are too stupid to think for themselves before they got involved with this stuff. Um, but so they're focusing on the gamification of investing, the psychological reward pathways. And I think that's all good, but I think they're missing the big point here. And it seems to me that the whole issue is that, again, like I said, the frustration that the big players, the Citadels, I mean, Robinhood, I get it, they had a liquidity issue, but it seems to the average Joe that these major financial institutions and players aren't being held to the same standard. And it's the retail investors every time who have to pay for their mistakes. Well, you know, that's the cost of business. I mean, you know, when you've got billions of dollars to throw at something and you're this huge entity that 
you know, as we saw in 2008, you know, these huge, you know, banks, investment firms, they're too big to, to, to crash. I mean, the impact of really regulating them. And that's the thing too. Anytime, you know, regulation comes out, there's talk about, you know, getting into Wall Street, you know, changing the way that things are taxed, really regulating these firms. You know, the market responds negatively, obviously. And in turn, that has a detriment, negative impact on the economy. So it's a very delicate situation. And I don't know if that's just the power dynamic that Wall Street holds over the, frankly, the global economy at this point. Um, and I know some people will probably say, well, you know, the economy and Wall Street, they're not one and the same, not reflective. But again, it's its the power that they have there. And we saw over the last year, which I thought was interesting with the beginning of COVID and the lockdown, you know, the stock market tanked, it dropped, reflective at that time of the economy halting. But within like six months, it returned to normal levels. And there was, again, that disconnect between just the ordinary people who are suffering and then again, Wall Street, the, the fat cats who are reaping all the benefits and almost playing their own game. Yeah, I think there's definitely been that disconnect between the gains on Wall Street and the ordinary lives and economic well-being of average Americans. And I think that's a great topic for a future conversation. But to wrap up things on GameStop, what are some of our closing thoughts on the situation as a whole? Steve, as you go forward and live the rest of your life, what what are you sort of thinking about from the situation? What are you taking away from it? That it's just so easy these days to get caught up in these movements and they're so pervasive. I mean, I remember, you know, we, you know, you and I, we've been on Wall Street bets well before GameStop happened. You know, we, I remember looking back at some of our messages, we were sending us screenshots of the stock going from $6 to $20 to $40. And we're like, oh, should we get it? Should we get it? And of course we didn't, you know, we're looking at it from, I guess, somewhat of a reasonable perspective. This makes no sense. This is going to come crashing down. And then it becomes this big movement and obviously it shoots up. But, you know, it's just, to me, you know, it's, it's turned into, you know, there was a lot of scrutiny on how trading actually happens. And I've done a lot of reading and you, you try to understand the market and, you know, high frequency trading, you know, the order flow type thing. But what I think about is just, you know, it's really in a way you're never really going to be able to win. And as, you know, as someone who dabbles in day trading and I guess considered a retail investor, for me, at least it's been an opportunity where I've really understood the market. And to me to hedge my risk, you know, I'm never going to be able to complete with the citadels, the big, you know, I, I'm just going to, I know that they've got an advantage of me and there's nothing that I can do to trade, you know, to, to really overcome that. I mean, there's algorithmic trading, you know, AI is, you know, has always, you know, has always been within wall street ever since it really became, you know, was in, incepted, but you know, it, it, it's just, it's just going to be harder and harder for people, I think, to beat those big firms. And I have frankly, very little doubt that they're going to be able to, or very little faith in that they're going to be able to really regulate Wall Street in a way that it suddenly evens the playing field for me. So I'm going to take more of a moderate approach. And, you know, I think it's easy to get caught up in phenomena today. Um, you know, there's, you know, I think another interesting one was Blackout Tuesday this year, you know, this po positive social movement on social media. Um, but again, you know, there's all these movements that come and people get swept up in them. And, you know, they, it's suddenly the only thing that they can focus on. But I think there's benefit to really kind of stepping back from the situation realizing that, oh, this is some, in some extent a pattern. There's always a movement. There's always a phenomena. And at the end of the day, it sort of becomes an afterthought because again, there's so much stimulation. We're going to find the next thing and we're going to latch onto that. 
I 100% agree. And I'd be very curious, dude, it would be cool to interview someone about social movements and how those progress moving forward. But frankly, I mean, my closing thought is that it was just fun. It was a fun being a part of it, dude. You had all these people online egging each other on, diamond hands. You had your own lingo. It felt very inclusive. Everyone was welcome. Everyone was stupid. I think that was the greatest (laughs) quote. It's like, I can remain an idiot longer than the big hedge funds can remain solvent. And that, to me, I loved. There was a sense of community. There were all these donations and charities donating to local children's hospitals, donating to the Save the Gorilla Fund, Save the gorillas. adopting the gorillas in the name of GameStop. I mean, it was hysterical. And the thing is, like, one, having worked in a press office before, and two, being a you know somewhat regular user of Wall Street Bets, there are some moments where I'm like, guys – you don't know anything about journalism when they were like, why is no ma- major media company covering the fact that we've adopted these gorillas? I'm like, guys, it's a Saturday at like midnight. No one is covering this right now. This is not breaking news. Nothing is going on. But just wait a couple of days and someone will put something out. And sure enough, people put something out and all those complaint posts went away. But dude, it was just so much fun. It was so cool to be a part of it. I mean, you had a little bit of the spillover with AMC and Nokia, but nothing, I don't think anything this year at least is going to compare to the initial rush of GameStop and the staying power of the stock where in our first episode, we mentioned it tanks, but it's been shooting up again. It's It's back. The train's back on, baby. Get on the rocket while there's still time to launch. To the moon. No, but you know, I, I, I'm... The last thing I'm going to say, and I, I did like how you spun that because, you know, it, it was a very positive note. And I think one way to look at this too is despite all the sort of negativity we said about social media, at the end of the day, it provides this sense of community, this connectedness. And, you know, we've been gamers for our whole lives. We've always sort of, you know, associated with that online culture. And for the most part, it's super inclusive. You know, if you're there, if you're against the man, it, whatever the cause is, everyone just is, you know, positive and yeah there's trolls and all that bullshit but it's usually in good fun and you know that's kind of the power and i guess the positive way to look at this is that you know more people are becoming connected there's a greater sense of community now that people are stuck at home with covid it gives them a way to connect with other people meet new friends from all over the world i mean that's what's really cool about this and yeah that's my positive take on it well on that note on all the positivity um I think, I think we should. Uh, how how should we end the episode, Steve? Well, you know, let's keep it let's keep it classic. You know, uh, I'll I'll go say you know thank you thank you everyone for listening to this week's episode of uh, Don't Call Me. Uh, Wait, uh, don't say it. I ca- I tried to catch myself, but yeah. how do you sign off? How do, what do you do? It's simple. We don't. <laughs>